What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining us for a podcast. Got Elliot alongside me, and we're about to jump into conversation with Matt Farmer all about non-resident and just pressure in general that we've been having this past season. And I say we, but it's a, you know, um, definitely a, a Kansas discussion with Elliot and Matt being from Kansas. So uh, it should be a good one. Really interesting to kind of see uh, the different perspectives on all that and, and uh, you know, what what the plan and what the thoughts are on all that. So um, how you been doing, Elliot? I've been doing great, man. Um, and to add on to what you were saying, it's not just a Kansas issue. This last year with COVID and people having more time off and people being able to work at their hotel or at their truck, non-resident, and with some of the issues they've been having down in the southern states, you know. Yeah. The Central Flyway has just seen a crazy amount of non-resident pressure. So it's just an issue that a lot of people are talking about, and we're going to kind of get deep into that and what Kansas is going to be doing about that or if they're going to yeah. do anything. And, and not to all. mention college students and all that. There was not college in a you know, a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, or online college, you know, across the country. So there's a lot of, like I said, perfect storm, a bunch of craziness going on. So, um, you know, modern issues and modern day problems, modern day hunters and all that. So, um, yeah. it'll be interesting to, to kind of hear all that. And, you know, uh, like I said, can't, it, you're, you're right. It's not just a Kansas issue. It's an issue in a ton of States, but I guess what I was trying to to allude to is that you guys are both from Kansas. So it's kind of that, that perspective. So, um, you know, and that's the data we kind of will be able to talk about, but. Yep. Yeah. And Matt works for the state. He's a biologist and a, um, I forget his actual title. What is visa? Um, biologist and, and, um, manager of one of the complexes here in Kansas. So he's got some inside knowledge of, I mean, it's, it takes up his whole life, this topic, you know, with, um, public hunting here in the state. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple, a couple updates, you know, I get you know, probably the most common question I get, um, this off season is people asking for bus updates, man. I have not, <laughs> I have not done as much on there as I probably should. So you've been hanging out at your snake. Yeah. Too much. That's what I was going to get time of your life. Like a little yeah. kid. It's really hard you're to, as a little schoolgirl and some of those Marco <laughs> Polos out there. I, I was loving those Marco Polos from the snake. Oh, yeah. I gotta say it was, it's a lot of fun, but it's really hard to be motivated to work on the school bus. Cause like right now I'm doing the, the demolition, which is like the worst part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just pain and suffering is what it feels like, but I need to get through it. I'm going to get through it. And I'm going to get crack-a-lacking on that. But uh, <laughs> so um, I am continuing on with the bus build. Guys, videos will be coming um, just later on in the year. So uh, closer to season, that's when the whole series will come out for the um, the bus build. And, you know, I will have it functional by season. I want to say I promise, but I, I can't I can't say that without. <laughs> I, I'm going to do my very best. But like you said, my other update is about the snake swamp, which I'm doing a video series for that as well. Um, Elliot, I've showed you some of the drone footage. I can't remember. I showed you quite a bit of it, but I got I saw the one you put on Patreon. Actually, it's funny because I was showing my father, my father-in-law and uh, my wife has a relative um, who's actually also a collaborator with her on some of her artwork here, staying with us for a few days. And we're all watching that drone footage you put on Patreon. It's like that drone footage is so cool. Cause first you look at it. It's like, you think you're looking at a painting with all the colors and the uh-huh. swirls and they're like, Oh my gosh, this is just a marsh. 
there's Jordan clear down there pulling a <laughs> pulling a kayak through that. <laughs> but it literally, I thought it was like a painting when I first saw it. It is really cool. That yeah. footage is awesome. You know how hard it is to pull a canoe and drive a drone at the same time. <laughs> See, that's what I told my father. I was like, I think he's controlling. He's like, no, he's like, I bet he has one of those that just automatically follow you. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's controlling that as he's like yeah. pulling a rope over his. You did a great job. I was I was one handed the canoe with the rope over the, over the shoulder, mm-hmm. and then the the kayak or I had the drone controller like tucked under my chest so you can't see it. You know, because you don't want you don't want yeah. it to give like I feel like if people see the camera or see you have something in your hand, it takes away from. Um, yeah. And even me talking about it takes something away from it, right? So, because you want it to feel like it's capturing something like the fly on the wall kind of perspective, mm-hmm. you know, you know what somebody would see if they're up there, way up there in the marsh. Yeah. But it's but the thing is, is you are doing that when you're not droning. You are literally that's part yeah, of the event, yeah so. yeah oh yeah. But that's you what know. you want to show. But you can't because yeah. you got to be doing all all the self filming. So, but not you only that, that was probably not even the coolest footage I got because I got some really cool shots. In there, um, I got some night lapses, some time lapses. So, I've how been, did those night lapses turn? Night laps turn out. Um, I did. I did more than one. I had one that turned out pretty good. Um, I'd say it's pretty good. I showed it to Matt and Thomas. They both thought it was awesome. So, um, yeah, it's it's good. So, I, I, I'll, I'll definitely be back out there. I almost wanted to run out there tonight. I'm like addicted to go to the snakes <laughs> just to go up there and set up like cameras to catch some night lapses because there's there's so many like dead trees and marshy stuff that look really cool with the, the night lapses yeah. out there, or at least I, I I can envision them looking good. I haven't tried it yet at those spots. So I got like a bunch of spots picked out to keep getting footage. Um, but you know, honestly, I should, I should send you one of the videos I like to watch. Yes, please. So Put it on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, that's Put a good idea. Patreon. I'll do that. So um, I but, tried to do a night lapse one time and, and I don't know what setting I did wrong. But when I when I put it into my editor, it was like individual photos. Yeah, and it didn't it didn't like stream them together. Yeah, that's just the or older GoPro. GoPro. So the newer ones actually do the whole conversion and make a video for you. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so the I old ones. Nine, so. Yeah, it's the old ones. You got to put all the photos in there, and then you got to export it as like an hour and a half long video. Then you got to take the video and make. Well, now I'm getting into details people don't care about, but you got to do a lot more yeah. work to make those into a, okay. a night lapse, but. Um, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to do some, some of that too. Yeah. Yeah. When you, yeah. When you get a new GoPro, you'll be able to do that on there. Obviously not I as good it. as like a, it's in my possession. Nice. It's not as good as like a big camera, but it, you can definitely get ones that do the job. So yeah. Cool. Cannot wait to see that stuff. Yeah. So I've been in the snake swamp and kind of just give the update on there. Um, you know, I've tried a, a bunch of different ways to try to get in there. I was going to like make a path through there kind of unsuccessful, but I, I mean, I figured out how to do it. I just couldn't do it the way I wanted to. Um, then I got up in there. Tons of natural duck food in there already. I was planning to plant some food. I did plant some food, but I don't need to worry about it near as much as I, I thought as I thought it would because there's just so much food up in there. It's like insane. Nice. So, and for those of you who don't know, the Snake Swamp is a private, which private piece of property that Jordan has access to, and I and I think I've got an idea why no one else hunts it. It seems like a killer. To get in and out of that yeah. place. Oh, so yeah. Jordan's own little slice of heaven slash hell. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So um, the next big thing on the agenda there is <laughs> making a blind. So I got this whole plan, and I'm going to have to, like, 
you know, do the same thing. You know how I have to got a porters. I got to pull canoes across land, get to a creek, mm-hmm. paddle through a creek, then pull that through the land. And then once I get all the materials there, I'm going to have to build a blind like in the mud. So <laughs> it's going to be a process. Do you think if you were to have you and a buddy and two kayaks, because here's what Fumbles did um, back in the day is he would build blinds. Um, and then we had this huge cargo canoe and he would lay them on top of the cargo canoe to transport them in and then offload them. No, it's just, you could do that. No, it'd be impossible there because, um, you gotta like, like the land to the Creek, you got like a big drop off and then same thing creek back on the land. Yeah. You can't like, you can't, you wouldn't be able to lift it and float it in there. Can't float it in there. No. Cause you got a portage across like a hundred yards of, of that marshland that I was pulling the canoe. So you could take a pallet in there to help stand on when you build it. That's an idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can stand on it. I can stand on the edges at this, the section where I'd build it. But then I'm like, I'm wondering if it's going to be too much weight. Cause I'm going to make it like a yeah. floating blind and then take it where it needs to be and then stake it into the ground. So Ooh, floating blinds. Mm, that's tough. Yeah. The balance of them because fumbles made one of those too. He yeah. was doing this when I was in high school and I wasn't part of the building process, but I was part <laughs> of the hunting on the process. And so he tried the floating blind one and when we both sat on there together, <laughs> it, it, it was rough. It Too was wobbly. Rough. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Kind of, I was kind of figuring the same thing. So, I'm, but the thing about the floating that I'm hoping it does is cause this is a bottomless marsh, right? So we've talked mm-hmm. about that. I'm worried that if I like, if I just post it into the ground, like put posts, mm-hmm. drive posts in the ground over time, they'll sink. But having the counterweight of the barrels and, you know, I've, I've done the, the math on there with the volume and, and, uh, the water displacement, you'll have 450 pounds per barrel. So if you're using like eight barrels, 3,600 pounds worth of flotation. So Man, look at the brains going on here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my dad helped me with, with some of that too. So we were, we were actually drawing it all out. Uh, <laughs> so, um, figuring out a plan for that. Um, but, yeah, I think that having the barrels there as well will keep That's it from just like having a post just keep sinking on you. Mm-hmm. So even if it did, you could un- unscrew that post and the barrels would kind of rise yeah. it up and then you could re mm-hmm. rescrew them in there to kind of have yeah. a section where that 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 post can keep going down. So I've put a lot of thought nice. into it. Now it's just yeah. the hard part is going to be getting all those materials in there and actually getting it done. So, so answer this question. Out of, let's say you're awake, what, let's say 15 hours in a day? Yeah. Out of those 15 hours, what percentage of that are you thinking about waterfowl hunting or something <laughs> related to waterfowl hunting? Man. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a, an embarrassing amount. Yeah. If, if you ask my wife, it'd probably she'd probably say that it's like, uh, I'm definitely up more than 15 hours. Not you say that, but um, it's probably yeah, like. You stay up late. Yeah. I'm like, a, I get like six, six hours sleep kind of guy. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but she'd probably tell you it's every single hour <laughs> Yeah, and that's not Does true. Does it ever feel overwhelming to you? Does it ever feel overwhelming to you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just feel like yeah. I can't, it feels like it's a faucet and I can't, t- there's no, like, like the faucet's broke. I can't turn it off. <laughs> this is why we work so well as partners. It's, yeah. It, it's like, it's, I, I'm the same way. I was talking to Jake from chasing green yesterday on the phone. We, he's such a, good friend man he just calls all the time and i'm a terrible friend i never call uh anyway 
he, we were talking about that, and he's like, man, uh, uh, how are you doing in your spiritual life? And I was like, well, man, I was like, you know, I love all this waterfowling and stuff, but sometimes I get concerned about the amount of times that I, how often I just, I'm obsessive by nature. And it's like, I, gosh, I feel, it feels like every yeah. second. Yeah. I know it's not, but that's what it feels like. It's oh, like, yeah. I'm thinking about this project or that project or this editing, or I'm editing that, or I'm, uh, I mean, in the last four days, I've rewatched and edited every single video from last year, like 25, 30 videos. Uh, and, and I've gone through and dissected little pieces out of it. It's just like, and when I'm not doing that, it's like, oh, I drown by a pond. I'm looking for every little nook and crane on the pond. Is there a little teal there? Yep. And it's like, I get on Facebook. It's all waterfowl stuff. I get on Instagram. It's all waterfowl stuff. It, it, it feels over. It does sometimes. I just wish I, like you, that I could just turn it off. That's what kind of Rocket League is for me, honestly. That's yep. kind of what Rocket League is for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, just yeah. turn it off for a second. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. We are eaten up, Jordan. We are. Up. It's a, you know, it's a good thing. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> but I know exactly what you're talking about for sure. So. We need that. We need. We need season to roll in. And the thing is, we're 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 just so busy. At least I am. I feel like, I feel like most years I get really like the duck depression, kind of like, oh, I need season to get here. But this year I have so much stuff to do. Like between like yeah. the projects I'm trying to do and the snake swamp, between the projects I'm trying to do with uh, the bus, um, just you know all that. I'm like, I don't have enough time to get all this done before season, which is a weird, yeah. a weird feeling for sure. So. Yeah, but let's go ahead and get a quick word from our partners and we'll go ahead and get Matt on and up Matt up on in here for the podcast. So first off, I'd like to give a big thanks to motion duck decoy spreader. Uh, they have two options, guys, the the four duck or the seven duck spreader. Seven duck is the ultimate spreader. I say they have two options, but you can just keep adding these and make bigger spreads and, you know, have different pods. But uh, no one days. This product is perfect. Put some motion in your set and Guys, if you're a hunter and you've been out there on a day with no wind, you know the first thing you first thing you probably do is switch around your decoys or something like that when they don't work in. But when it comes down to it, it's the glass, the ducksy, the water not moving, no ripples. If you ever seen natural ducks, they don't have that. So this solves that for you. It's a jerk rig on steroids, and I use it every chance I get. So check them out, guys. Code is DuckGun10, ten percent off and free shipping over at MotionDucks.com. Guys, if you enjoy the content that Jordan and I put out, whether it's the podcast or Duck Gun Chronicles or Freelance Duck Hunting, and you just can't get enough of it, I encourage you to come on over to patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting. Because over there, Jordan and I have a whole different community where we're putting out a lot of extra bonus content. And we just started releasing our Waterfowler's Guide. Right now, it's going to be seven video course where we're going through the essentials of waterfowl hunting video by video. Um, and we're releasing them every couple Mondays. We're putting out a new one. And also we've got, we haven't fleshed out the, the details of this, but we're going to give away a hunt to some member, some patron over there is going to win a hunt to come hunt with Jordan and I. So we have a lot of awesome stuff going over there. Patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting. There's a lot of different tiers. There's a $1 tier. There's a $10 tier, you know, and, and we're using all those proceeds right now for our ideas that we have at Freelance Hunt Stats because 
when I brought Jordan onto this, I was struggling with some of these ideas and I just didn't, I felt like I was just discouraged. I'm like, who is the one person on this planet that thinks about ducks as much as I do and is a driven person? I'm like, Jordan, I'm like, Jordan, come on over and let's get juice this thing up. And Jordan's jumped into Freelance Hunt Stats and he has got so many aggressive ideas. So anyway, that's where the proceeds go. So come on over and join us at patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting. Awesome. Also like to give a big thanks out to Bandit, Avery, and Greenhead Gear. Guys, duck season doesn't feel like it now, but it is fast approaching. And right now is the time to go ahead, start getting your list together. And, you know, every year at the end of it or during off season at some point, I go through all my gear and figure out things that are broken, things that I, that I need to replace, things that I want to have. Maybe I don't need them, but I really want them and kind of make a list. So, you know, get your, your ducks in a row and figure out what you need for, for duck season. Bandit has everything from decoys, dog equipment, hunting gear, camo, waders, you name it, the one-stop shop for the hardcore duck hunter. So check them out, banded.com. Hey, guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, and I got my co-host alongside me, the duck tater himself, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting. And our guest tonight is one of Elliot's buddies. It is Matt Farmer. And he is a fish and wildlife biologist and public land manager. How are you doing tonight, Matt? Pretty good. How are you guys? Doing great. So, uh, you know, one of the things we're going to be talking about tonight is, um, well, a lot, a lot to do with Kansas and in this last year. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that's brought a lot of out-of-state hunters and, and um, kind of just going over that topic in general. But for the people who haven't heard you before, you know, go ahead, just, you know, let people know kind of what your day-to-day is like and, and uh, you know, a little bit about yourself. Oh, I uh, grew up in Kansas, uh, graduated from college, decided I want to be going to the wildlife uh, field, and uh, got hired on as a public land manager. Um, I've been where I'm at in my part of the world for, uh, for 15 years now. Um, mostly what I manage is the wetland area in the state. Um I also love to duck hunt and turkey hunt when I'm not working. Um, day-to-day stuff is uh, is kind of all across the board throughout the year. Uh, you name it, we do it. You know, one day we're cleaning to- toilets and mowing parking lots. The next day we're doing burning and and uh, planting some food plots and, and, and moving with some water around for the ducks. So, so it, it really varies day-to-day, and it's a, it, it's a, it's a fun job. And uh, no two days are the same, that's for sure. <laughs> I remember uh, the last podcast we had you on, you gave one really good piece of advice and I've took it to heart and remembered it ever since. But um, your tip was, if you ever see just a single glove in a parking lot, don't pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) Unless unless, unless you want to start gagging as soon as you see what you picked up. Oh, yep. Yep, that was a good Interesting one. So, Matt, have you ever caught anyone taking a dump in a parking lot? Because oh, I've yeah. seen the people that have done it. Have you yeah, ever I mean, actually rolled into seeing, seeing someone doing it? Yeah, it's one of the deals that's 
in the morning in the dark, you know, everybody's shuffling around, getting their stuff around. They will start walking out. Your headlights hit somebody and they have, I think you're, the look on your face is just as bad as their look. It's, you know, <laughs> everybody's embarrassed. So you just kind of keep moving on. <laughs> and then, you know, the worst part is when somebody does that and then somebody else's dog goes and rolls in it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I get a lot. I get a laugh out of that because it makes people gag and then guys are spraying their dogs down with brake clean and trying to keep them away. And oh, it's, it's, it's entertaining to say the least. Is there any, uh, is there any legality issues with someone taking a dump in a parking lot? <laughs> no, nah, I mean, other than littering, we have some restroom facilities on our property, but you know, you know, when it hits you, you don't want, you know, you don't need to drive five, six miles. It's just <laughs> toilet paper biodegrades. And it's one of them things that everybody's got to do it. Just, I just ask that they not do it in the middle of a parking lot or oh, a yeah. place where people are really going to be, you know, I've definitely been out on some hunts where Elliot has to lose a sock or a <laughs> something like that for, for, uh, you know, taking I care of his business. Happen. Yeah. That that was, a, that was an emergency. I don't go. I don't take dumps on hunts very often. But my dad and Golden Boy do. And I don't know yeah. if you saw. I know. I know Matt. You watched some of my videos. I don't know if you saw this one where I accident. I thought I was getting baby wipes, but I got uh, um, hand sanitizer, like alcohol wipes. Oh. <laughs> and uh, Aiden had to take a dump. Well, first the first day, my dad had to take a dump, and he went and used them and never said anything. The next day. Oh, no. Um, Aiden had to, and he came back and he's like, Oh, my bottle's on fire. Those are, <laughs> those are hand sanitizing wipes. I'd had them on my bag for three weeks. I had no idea, but oh, I guess man. that burns pretty good. Apparently is what I'm being told. Now, baby wipes are awesome. <laughs> yeah. Just they're don't worth, get alcohol. In a blind bag. Oh yeah. 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 That's yeah. definitely one of my, uh, my necessities that I have in there. <laughs> Oh yeah, but we've all so, been there. Cut, cut sleeves off, cut socks off, lose gloves. It, yeah. it happens. Oh yeah, part of the adventure. Part of part of being out there in nature. You gotta go. Yeah. Why they call it nature's call? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So getting into this, the topic we're going to talk about today, and the reason that we had had Matt come on here is that the perception throughout the state this last hunting season was that the out of state or the non-resident waterfowl hunters were just through the roof. I mean, everyone was talking about it all season from my own personal perception. I noticed it. Um, it, it was just an issue. And as the season ended, um, the local or the resident waterfowl hunters became very, very vocal. And I know that there was a lot of outcry for sending in the the commission. And Matt, if you could, in a second, I'm going to give you a chance to kind of explain how Kansas does it with the commission, because I know it's a little different than some other states. But people were just, the local hunters were just blowing up email boxes to these commissioners, like, you have to do something about this. We have to have more regulations. Our, our, our resources are being over um, overhunted. And the concern was that there's so many out-of-state hunters that it's it's pushing the local hunters to the side. And so it became a really, really big issue in the public eye if you paid attention to that, to that thing. And so um, we have different commission meetings and the commission was actually talking about this issue and it seemed very much like they were going to take some serious action and some changes and, and the forums, the state forums were just blowing up. It, it's I've never seen anything like it. So Matt, what I'd like for you to do just... Explain how the commission is set up in, in Kansas 
And then okay. um, whatever data you have on the topic, go ahead and, and give us some of that. Okay. Um, so the governor of the state appoints the commission. And the commission is a board, basically, of that, that are, like I said, appointed by the governor. Um, they're located throughout various parts of the state. Um, they're not full-time employees with the agency. They serve a term. Um, after they're appointed. So what their job is, is they have the final say on regulatory laws and like seasons, um, posted notice closures, certain regulations. State statutes are set by the legislation, but our commission has the freedom to control certain regulations. With that, um, they take public opinion, um, as like like Elliot said, you know, people were calling their commissioners. That's you know, that's just like calling your senator. Um, but with that, the way things work with the agency is our agency has certain committees. Like we set waterfowl seasons. There's a committee where we look at data. Um, our agency tries as hard as we can to um, to take as much bias out of out of these decisions as we can. So we utilize science. Um, that's how we roll. And we put some numbers together and, and we make recommendations to the commission based solely on the data. Um, it's the commission's job then to take our recommendations that we give them using data. And then they combine the suggestions and recommendations they get from the public. And then they have the final say um, on what happens and, and the way they want to move forward with regulations. So well, when this came about, um, all of us, public lands guys that manage wetlands knew about it. We heard about it. We're, we're actually see, seeing some stuff on the ground. Um, and we did see a lot of non-resident hunters this year and we had our own opinions. I won't get into that, but, um, with that, uh, the commission tasked us with, uh, looking in the, into this a little deeper. So our, uh, our division director tasked us to gather some information. We looked, uh, gathered a bunch of harvest data and hunter, mostly hunter data, um, demographic data, um, on where these people are coming from. So most of our wetland areas, and in fact, all of them are, uh, they're on the iSportsman system, which is an electronic daily check-in system. So um, people poo-poo it because they think it's a, it's kind of a pain. Uh, if you go hunt one of these areas, you have to check in. So you, you register with your demographic information, who you are, where you're from. And then every day you hunt, you check in electronically over your phone on the computer. Uh, and then after your hunt, you check out and give your harvest information. Um, it's times like these when those numbers are very important to us um, because we utilize those numbers to provide input to the commission. And and so we've had several calls, and and you know, every all of us managers and, and the agency in general is, is really taking this seriously um, because it is an issue. And, and there are a lot of people uh, speaking up about it. But with that. Um, we want to do due diligence and make sure that we're not having a knee-jerk reaction or an unbiased opinion. So that's that's where we as scientists turn to the numbers and really look at the data. Um, Kansas, when it comes to public land, is 48th or 49th in the nation. So we're a big state, but we do not have a lot of places to put these people when it comes to public land. So um, the last commission meeting here a couple of weeks ago, um, our division director presented the data uh, that we put together as wetland managers um, and we've had several conference calls and, and video chats about this and 
and uh, and what we saw and, and, and kind of what we recommend um, to the commission and and uh, they kind of move forward with that. Um, and I don't know if you want me to get into what we saw yet or what what we recommended. But, well, let, let me let me add a couple things yeah. in here about about the, about the commission now to give people a little more context. Um, these these commission meetings are normally in person, and you can go to them. And they allow yeah. the public to speak. And also they've, they've made them digital. So you can get on the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks website and watch these. And so yeah, the they're, commission, they're, still open, they're still an open forum as well. People can people can people could speak up during a public forum electronically, too. They're really fascinating. In fact, there's been a couple of years. I don't know if you remember. Um, there's been a couple of years where some total non hunters have come in and just start acting crazy and saying weird things. Yeah. And so it's actually really pretty entertaining, these commission meetings a lot of times, but the yeah, commission does not, the commission does not view itself as um, subservient to the biologists at all. It's very, very frequently that, and, and these presentations that the biologists do are really fascinating. They'll get up PowerPoints and, and they, they'll go through this whole thing and they'll say, now this is why we, we believe that the seasons should be set at this time. And the commissions a lot of times just be like, nah, no thanks. We're going to do it, you know, however we want to do it. And so that that recipe brings a lot of scorn on the commissioners um, and a lot of drama on the public forums because you've got Commissioner A wanting this season date and there's all these, well, we think he wants this season date because of his friends. And 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 I mean, it's just it it I like how it's set up. It's interesting. But it breeds kind of this angst, I think, because yeah, you've got these scientific, well put together presentations, and a lot of times the commission will just be, will just totally ignore it. Yeah, and and that's why they're there. I mean, that they vote on these regulations, whether they're approved or voted down, and and it's it's a, it's a very structured system on how they have to, you know, move forward with these recommendations, what what the how they want to change things. Um, so that's why us as the agency in the field, you know, that's why we rely on that data because everybody has a different opinion. Every duck hunter has a different opinion. Every deer hunter does. And so do the commissioners. And, and our hope is those commissioners use, you know, they utilize the emails they get and the phone calls they get from the public. And that's how they move forward with their decisions, um, you know, with what they want to work with. But, you know, yeah, it, it seems it can be very interesting on, in how it plays out. Um, I'll be honest, it, it's frustrating on both sides at times, but that's just how the process is and that's how it's been. And, and, and that's just, you know, we just roll with the punches and, and do the best we can. So. Yeah. So um, now they have, how many commission meetings do they have a year? Five, six approximately? Oh man. It's, Somewhere between it's four several. and six, I think. So Yeah. It's, it's so, multiple meetings. They've had since the end of season. They've had they've had several meetings, and during each meeting, they they addressed this issue in depth. And it felt very much as though they were going to be aggressive about um, making some changes to help the local resident hunters. And and here's what I remember them talking about. And if I miss anything, they were talking about raising fees up to a max of hundred and twenty five dollars. Um, for an out-of-state license, they were talking about restricting um, the amount of days that an out-of-state hunter could hunt. They were talking about um, specific locations, and I know like at Cheyenne Bottoms, talking about making 
regulation specific. Uh, I can't remember what. Do you remember anything else that they were talking about as possible solutions? Oh, uh, there were there were several the things. Yeah, doing a doing a draw, kind of similar to those people are familiar yes. with how North Dakota does it with their non-residents, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a lot of options and a lot of suggestions. Um, there was even suggestions about you know purchasing more wetland areas, and that's what you know that's what we're doing. We're trying, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was there was a lot there. Um, there wasn't really one path to go down. So but they that's seemed very aggressive. All, the, the The tone yeah. was that we are really serious about this, and we're going to make some changes. That was kind of the it, tone, and, and, and it's it's still that way. Um, I know coming up for the next commission meeting here in June, um, prior to the meeting, I think there's going to be a, a, a roundtable discussion uh, with the commissioners, with us wetland managers. I, I'm pretty sure since it involves the commission, it will be open to the public, but they won't be able to ask questions or voice their opinion during that time. But I think they'll be able to listen in on that. And then during the public, uh, the, the public portion of the meeting in the evening, then, the, then they can have their turn to to voice their opinion or make themselves heard. So it's still ongoing. It's, it's, it's still out there. So is on this last commission meeting, the state presented their data and what they did is they, they took uh, four or five different areas, one of which was the one that you manage. And they, they had, they presented the data from each of those, each of those complexes. And correct me if I'm wrong, the, the general summary I got from it is, well, this isn't as bad as what people have been saying it is. It's not as bad as it was in previous days. So really, yeah. there's not as much of a problem as what people think. Is that kind of summed yeah, up? And, and that's kind of what we discovered was across the state, all of our wetland areas are so incredibly different on – not only the demographic of hunters, but when the hunters come and use, utilize these areas. So we looked back as far as we could with hunter data. Um, and when you look back, we'll take a, one of the properties out east, for example. In the 1970s, there was almost 8,000 hunters in this one season on this property. And this year, there was only 4,000. So we got to really digging into that. I mean, and, and there was, and there was, and we're just looking at hunting pressure right now, just number of hunters. Um, and, you know, and across the board, some of these more popular properties, there was way more hunters in the 70s. Uh, and even in some in the in the mid-2000s, like 2013, when, when the water came back, uh, we had a lot more hunters than, than we do now. So discussing that as a group, it turned into more, okay, may, we are having some issues that we'll get into later, but the, the overall thing was it's, it, it's an issue of pressure. Um, we're not seeing just the weekend warriors go out and, and hammer the places on the weekends. And then you get basically just one or two or, or a handful of hunters during the week. And then on the weekend, it fires back up again this year with the climate we've had that everybody talks about. Um, we had pressure nonstop from opening day all the way to the end of the season. And then you throw in social media and, and the accessibility of the internet and people chatting back and forth and the mobility of hunters in general nowadays. YouTube videos. YouTube videos. And then and then you throw in a pandemic where people can work out of their truck after a hunt, you know. Um, 
those variables really led us to believe that we we don't want to have a knee jerk reaction right now because Kansas we've we have some we had an excellent wetland habitat this year. Um, it was kind of a perfect storm situation. Um, we had the water, we had great habitat, we had the birds. Um, so we didn't want to make any recommendations that we might regret later on because it's a big deal. You start you start doing this. Um, number one, it involves a lot of manpower and effort uh, from the field level all the way to the commission. So once we broke down broke down the numbers, it's like okay, the best thing we could do right now is we can try a few things to address some issues on particular properties, individual properties. But overall, maybe we should hold off and, and, and take a look at this and have some more discussions and maybe go another season just to see what happens to get some more information and, and, and dig a little deeper before we make a this big decision, which in my opinion, it really is a big decision um, on, 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 on restricting our hunters. And, and, and we're not poo-pooing or we're, we're not trying to, the agency's trying not to, you know, push our resident hunters aside that's that's far from the truth i mean we all think you know our, the residents of kansas deserve uh, you know a right to a right at these places and uh, but we just want to make sure we're making the best sound decisions that we can and, and we're trying to come up with the best data possible to present to the commission i think that's why the commission kind of backed off is after they saw this data that was presented i think they kind of agreed i, I know there was several that were still pretty aggressive on wanting to do something now. So I, I think that's why we're going to continue to have these, we call them workshops, these in-depth discussions at every commission meeting to try to hash some of this out. So, um, you know, it's still ongoing and I think there's still be down the road, you know, it's, who knows what's going to happen. So then the number of hunters is not at an all time high, but does the data show that the number of out of state hunters is definitely increasing as, as yeah. a total number of hunters. Yeah, like one of our real popular properties out east. Um, in 2001 through 2013, um, there was only 12% non-resident hunters. Uh, but uh, from 2014 to 2020, there was 30% non-residents. And, and just in the single season last year in 2020, they had, you know, that, that line, those lines crossed. Um, you know, they had 49 49% was, was resident and, and, and 51% non-resident. So um, we are seeing a, a big increase of, of non-resident hunters. But but the timing, uh, you know, that they show up when the birds are here. I mean, they come to hunt, and when they come here to hunt, they're hunting all day, and they're moving to where the birds are. I know several times we ran into guys from the Mississippi area, and I think that you know, when you talk Arkansas and Mississippi, some of those where the they're they're getting some their their migration because of the weather has been dropping significantly, mm-hmm. and they're needing to travel more just because their traditional ground that they've always pounded them on. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of reasons to why people are saying it. You know, some people say it's the flooded corn or what. I think it's just weather cycles. Myself. Um, yeah, I agree. But th- those guys, it's just kind of the perfect storm of events, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, uh, I, think, I don't remember what year it was. One of the 2000 and somewhere between 10 and 14, Ducks Unlimited TV, they do like, you know, 12, 13 episodes. 
There was one yeah. year out of their total set of episodes, they did four out of Kansas. I mean, yeah. and, and that was kind of what started, uh, you know, Kansas being viewed as, you know, the new Arkansas. And and let's be real, Bobby Guy, he's from Kansas. Josh from Outdoor yep. Limits, he's from Kansas. I mean, those guys' channels are much bigger than my own, but, you know, I'm, I'm from Kansas. And so, like, if you if you look at some of the more successful YouTube hunters – they're from Kansas too. And that, that certainly I would really love to say that my videos don't have any effect on it. Um, and I don't, like I said, I'm, I'm not as successful as Bobby guy. Obviously he's doing millions and millions and millions of views, but that has yeah. to play into it. some. it has to. Oh yeah. And, and not even, you know, YouTube just is one of, is, is one of the strings in this web now. I mean, I mean, it used to be guys would chill out in the market, shoot a limit and have a cup of coffee and, and just enjoy their time. And, you know, now on the day to day, I see a lot of hunters and it's a, it's a race back to the truck for the tailgate pick so they can get it up on the mm-hmm. gram, you know? And yeah. it, it, it's just, it, it's a different culture now. It's really changed in my opinion. And that's just kind of how it is. And it gets shared all across the state with, you know, the Snapchats and, and the Facebook posts and Instagrams. And so people are, people are seeing that and people are using that as a scouting tool. And, uh, you know, it's for, for agency revenue. People have the opinion that's just for money. You know, we do get revenue, but it's 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 what makes these wetlands. It's what makes this machine run. And uh, and the resident dollars are just as important as the non-resident dollars are. So yeah, it's finding that this balance about, is, is a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as the Instagram picks, people don't realize. If you know an area really, really, really well, there's a lot of those pictures that that you can identify. The the manager from the area that I I'm not gonna say his name, but from the area that I hunt up here, you know him. He shot a limit two years ago, and a friend of mine sent it to me. He's like, he's like, oh, where do you think that is? And there was one key feature I saw in that. It was this huge beaver mound. It's the, and I know that area like the back of my hand, and not as well as he does, I'm sure, but. Um, and but that's the only place out there I know one place that has a big beaver mound like that. And from that yeah. one little thing, I was like, I think I know exactly where that is. So some people don't realize that if for the people that really really know the areas, it doesn't take much for them to be able to say I know exactly where that that limit was. Yeah. So you have to be, you have to be careful. Yeah, and then there's also YouTube videos out there. I've seen YouTubers that go along and they'll take shots of the signs and tell tell them exactly where they're hunting, which. If that's mm-hmm. how they want to run their channel. That's fine, um, but that yeah. that just opens, like you said, that just it, it just provides more information for people out there that want to that, that that are looking for a place to go. And and I don't want to be a hypocrite because obviously I'm I'm filming from those marshes, which is obviously a lot more yeah. identifiable than a than a pick. So I'm I'm my point being is that people can identify them more easily than you think. And as far as the YouTube videos, it's something. You know, when I started, we're getting off on a tangent a little bit, but I am curious about your opinion a little bit on this. And Jordan, feel free to chime in. But um, when I started recording these videos, I had no idea people were going to start watching them. And the next thing yeah. I know, it's like pretty successful. And then now I've got a, a dilemma like, well, what am I going to do? I, and I, it's like, okay, yeah. so now I'm not going to mention the state. I'm going to be careful on showing boat ramps. I'm not going to show. But it's like, it, and it's still to this day, it's like, man, am I making a bad decision what I'm doing? I mean, this thing snowballed on me. 
And now it's like, what can I do to minimize it? And so I, I still wrestle with, I wrestle with that whole aspect of it myself for, for sure. Yeah. I have one guy tell me, he explained, he explained to me, it was, it was pretty good. He says, you know, it's like this monster, you know, that starts out, it's this cute little thing that you're trying out and that you got mm-hmm. in your hand and it grows and you got to keep feeding it. And, and like mm-hmm. what you said, you know, there's only so much room in the pantry until you got to start grabbing for your special stuff and, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and start showing these, these big landmarks and, and things like that just yeah. to, just to keep this thing fed and going and, you know, yeah, that's the deal. It's it's it's, it's where it is it in and how far do you want to take it? So yeah, and and what I've always said to myself is that what I what I'm going to show people who know this hole are going to know the hole, but I'm not going to yeah. give information for someone who doesn't know it to be able to know where to go. That's kind and, of that's the, kind of my goal. And the public lands around here, it's not like it's a super secret thing. I mean. Mm-hmm. Us managers get accused all the time of we make our own little super secret holes. I'm here to tell you, if there's a super secret hole made, somebody's going to find it because people, there's good scouters out there and people pay attention and people keep their eyes on their head on a swivel. And and I have yet to find a a piece of my property that's a super secret hole that nobody goes to because it's just, they're hunted. So then you got to start looking at other ways to play the game. And that's what makes hunting public land. So, so appealing to me and so satisfied you know, I get a lot of satisfaction out of being successful at it when I am mm-hmm. is is trying to find other pieces of the puzzle that, that bring it together other than just, you know, that's the spot I have to be. Well, sometimes it's not necessarily the spot. Yeah. Like that place that Aiden and I call the Great Depression. I'd been watching that sucker for like ten years. <laughs> and then that flood came and I'm like, maybe this is it. <laughs> Got on it. <laughs> ten years. <laughs> that yeah. place is folklore now to Aiden and I. But anyway, what question? So, why do you think that no discussion about raising out of state um, prices came up during that meeting? That to me was the one thing that they had talked a lot about, and they said the limit was one hundred twenty-five dollars. I, I, in my way of thinking, that's something that at least could have been addressed, and it wasn't even brought up at all. Yeah, I, honestly, Elliot, I don't know. Um, you know, I was just part of the team that put the numbers together and we were available during the meeting for questions and and that was never brought up by the commission so um, yeah they never they never even mentioned it yeah i mean who's to say it's not going to get brought up again it probably will especially if the public brings it up so if everybody has an opinion and and, and wants their voice heard they, they got to contact their commissioner to let let their voice be known it's, it's, how, it's how democracy works right Okay, let me th- throw some questions at you, and if you you can say um, no, um, you can plead the fifth on some of these, okay? Because I know that we're we can with a couple of these. If you feel like this is bleeding over into personal opinion, just plead the fifth. Okay. So go- goose limit six or three. Mm-hmm. Six or three. Because mm-hmm. that was a big point of discussion at the commission. There was one yeah. commissioner the one um, the goose limit dropped to three. You, you know the the the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sets a framework. And, and they offer, based upon the science, again, the feds do the same thing. And so they allow our commission to set certain limits. There's a maximum of, of you know, some states you can shoot eight geese. Um, in Kansas, we shoot six. I know the, the opinion was brought up by lessening the goose uh, 
opportunity that the goose limit might be uh, beneficial to, to help to help curtail some of these issues. Um, and then the argument was brought back up again. Well, if you got a guy that's in the geese that can only hunt twice a year, he might want to shoot six. So mm-hmm. that goes right back into the everybody's different. Every place is different. Um, my personal opinion, six geese is a lot of meat. Um, mm-hmm. But if, if I'm only going to be able to hunt geese twice a year, you know, I'd like to shoot six geese. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated thing. It's not black and white by any means. Yeah. Do you think that would lower some of the out-of-state hunters coming in if that limit was dropped? My very personal opinion is no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on that, too. Yeah. I don't think it would affect anything. And there was someone that brought it up that, you know, guides would be able to run more groups if shuffling. Yeah. Out. I mean, um, it, it would help out the outfitter. I mean, and, and if guys had a, if guys had a limited availability, like you only got permission on this one field. And I mean, just because the limit six geese doesn't mean you have to shoot six geese, you know? Yeah. So if, if you want to, if you want to shoot geese off the same field for multiple days, maybe as a group, okay, guys are on the shoot three geese a piece and get back out of here. So we can come back tomorrow and maybe shoot six. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's how that goes. It's, you know, I, the, the limit is the, is the, for, you know, for a lot of guys, it's, it's, it's about shooting a limit, you know, shot a limit. That's a big accomplishment for a lot of people, but some people, mm-hmm. one goose is all they want. So like I said, there's just, it's all over the board. Yeah. Now, who is the, uh, what's the name of the biologist that um, was there and they were referring a lot of, referring a lot of the questions to him? A waterfowl biologist? Um, yeah, yeah, that was on the commission. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and I'm, he, what he stated and it, sound, it made sense to me is that from their data, out of state, um, it wouldn't affect people coming to the state until it got to that, like, two range. Um, yeah. Which makes sense because there is a big difference between three and two. It just seems like a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the same one. goes for the, the, the same goes for the season dates. You know, um, there's a lot of huge arguments on season dates and, and when seasons need to close and split and open back up. And really these arguments are over five days. Yeah. And that was actually, that's, a great thing, but that's where I was going. That's where I was going. Yeah. With that. So Southeast zone, they took a week out of January and put it into November, uh, which yes. is, I believe, that's what, what the recommendations were, um, which yes. in the past, the commission has been overruling the the state biologist and giving an extra day in January, or an extra week, five days in January, um, yes. and put it in November. So you, are you pro that decision? Um, fr- from the data, yes. Um, the, like Tom predicted, presented in this presentation the majority of mallard harvest in the southeast zone is in november mm-hmm. and on public land um you know those guys are sitting on a lot of ducks before the season's even open so um i think the closer we can get to opening up that that season like around november 7th um the saturday closest to november 7th which over a five-year period you'll have several years where the season will open later and then you have several years where it opens earlier. Mm-hmm. And then the split in January, you know, in the past was only five days, five weekdays. So there wasn't much rest there. Um, so now with this new date, they'll have a little more rest period there. And I know the guys with the ice feeders and, and then the stuff in that zone, it's, 
they didn't agree with that, but that was a conditions decision uh, this year going forward. So we'll see what happens next year. Yeah. It's, it is, this is a perfect example of how difficult it is to be non-biased in this, because for me, yeah. that's, that's not my own zone, but mm-hmm. if I can have those extra days in January, that's when my zone's closed. So we always yep. travel to that zone those weeks. So I just lost, I just lost, uh, no, for me, I'm weekend at that time. And I don't know how yeah. it falls with Martin Luther King Jr. Because normally it falls in there. But so I just lost two or three duck hunts off my season because they made that decision. So it's very, very yeah. difficult to take it outside of me and be like, yeah. well, yeah, those, those early guys in November, more people will have it. It's really hard. To not just yeah, be like, no, I, I want to hunt down there that fight, you know, during that time, you know. Yeah, and, and that's why the you know the agency makes that decision. You know, our, our public lands, we're holding ducks early and the hunters are using it early. And the data shows they're harvesting most of the mallards early. And, you know, those January dates, we've got a lot of ice. And it's really questionable what the conditions are going to be like. And so we're just going based off of harvest data, uh, the duck waterfowl counts that are on the properties at the time. And the, the public opinion polls that we put out every so often, um, those are crucial. Uh, if, if, if people get an email from the agency wanting to know their opinion and take this 10-minute survey, it's, it's pretty important that they take that survey to let their voices be heard. It's, it's very important because, I mean, Tom, there's a lot of energy that goes into those questions, trying to make them unbiased and trying to make the questions, form the questions where we're not trying to, to skew the hunter either way. Um, and then also trying to provide questions that are legitimately, you know, looked at and, and, and areas of concern. So he puts all that together, sends it out to, you know, a bunch of people based off of license sales. And he's only getting, he's getting less than like a seven or 8% return on those, which is not a lot of data to work off of. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the more people that can, just take 10 minutes out of their time and, and do these quick surveys. And I mean, if, if, if we can get a 20% return, that would be a lot better. To, to are those, up with these are those di- is there a digital option on that or is it only mail-in? Um, I don't I know to be honest. Mail-in. I think it's only mail-in, which is, that's going to, if we could get that to be digital, man, that would go through the roof. I would think. Yeah. And, and that might be where we're, we might try to head that way. Cause it's, I mean, it's it's just we just can't do that every year. There's there's a lot of time involved with that thing. Mm-hmm. So we usually try to do base those surveys around every five years when we're up for zone changes. You know, once once the zones are set, they're set for X number of years. So we'll try to to put out a survey once it gets close to time to re reestablish a zone to just try to test the waters again to see what everybody wants and what the public. And they- they just approved the zones last year, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Because there was a lot of talk about, I know, some rumbling that they were going to move the lines based on the Kansas River, which would be interesting mm-hmm. um, discussion. But, um, yeah. well, I think, oh, I, there's one other question I had. How, how did they do the census data back in the 70s before iSportsmen? Um, were they, were they, a lot of it was black cards. It was like check stations, um, okay. places like Cheyenne Bottoms. Um, if you, you know, they had designated concrete blinds. Everybody knows the concrete blinds at the bottom. Back in the 70s, 
Uh, if you wanted to hunt, if you wanted to walk in and hunt, you had to check in at a check station to draw a blind number, and then you would go hunt that blind, and you would come back with your blind number, and you would record your harvest and where you were from. Um, other properties like Meredithine and Neosho, they've had a check station for years and years and years. Um, yeah. You had to check in and check out pencil and paper, mm-hmm. um, and then it wasn't. Some of the other wetland properties got on board with with these card surveys. You know, back in the you know mid two thousand two thousand and eight and afterward, and then we got into this high sportsman electronic system, which is a lot more. It, it's a lot more efficient uh, for us, but but you know we're well, finding out hunter too. Those cards yeah. were a pain in the butt compared to high sportsman because I remember filling yeah, those out. Oh yeah, and you know I get a lot of complaints that it's a pain in the butt, but you know it's it's very expensive on our end to, to maintain the stations and to enter the data. And mm-hmm. now electronically, it's all real time. I can look and see how many hunters I got and, and, and where they're at. It's not like Big Brother, you know. The information yeah. we're obtaining, we already have because you bought a license. You know, it's, it's just name and address, you know, and then how many ducks you shoot. I mean, that's all we're really wanting to know to try to get a handle as a manager on, you know, okay, why are these many ducks being shot off of this pool and not this pool? You know, then that's when we start looking at the habitat and the water. You know, that, that lets us move people, manage people. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. Everybody, you know, we go to college to get these degrees on managing wildlife, but they don't teach you how to manage people. It's kind of <laughs> on the job training as you go. Well, Jordan, I think that's all I've got, unless there's uh, anything else that Matt wants to add to the topic. I, I just say, you know, Keep, everybody just needs to keep their ears open and try to keep their mind open as best they can. I mean, it's it's that's the reason we're you know it's it's being looked at very seriously and, and it's, it's taken to heart. And, and there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of back and forth on scenarios uh, and, and things that are happening. I know there's some properties that are changing some things this year just to try. Um, I know Shine Bottoms has several changes they might be making this year um there'll be some changes on the property as far as youth and veterans day goes there'll be some designated marches uh for, for youth but uh but you know so everybody needs to kind of keep abreast of, of the regulations on the property they're going to because uh, they may be changing but but overall when it comes to non-resident hunters right now we don't i don't foresee anything changing this next season but you never know this next commission meeting something might change awesome well we appreciate you coming on and and talking about all the you know all the thing that's coming on and giving us some of your knowledge from that and it's definitely a you know a a modern problem with a with the modern hunters kind of the way everything's changed and shifted and the way that people go about it and you know i definitely hope that that uh you know um through the data and all that whatever decision ends up being made there's just a way to preserve what you guys have going on. Cause, um, I've, you know, I've seen things like a draw system, man. I'm definitely not a fan of anywhere that does a draw system, but I understand the necessity with people and all that. And so, you know, I'm, yeah, there's, there's just, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. You, you got to think of it too. You know, you, you have your duck hole at your home state that you like to go to, but then how many people that have their own duck hole also every once in a while take a trip to North Dakota or, even to Canada. So they're a non-resident when they go there. So, yeah. you know, it, it kind of plays both ways. And, 
I mean, it's 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 a pretty delicate balancing act of of of, of trying to make the best decisions possible for for the state, for the resource, and for the residents. You know, what I mean, oh, yeah. and the non residents alike. So it's man, that's I can't juggle that many balls. And, <laughs> I don't even know if the circus professional could. So. <laughs> awesome. All righty. Well, any closing words, Elliot? Yeah, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, Matt. And I think the whole state. Now, before I say this, I'll say, guys, I've seen the data. And Kansas is a great waterfowl state, but it's no better than Oklahoma. It's no better than Nebraska. The whole central flyway, every state is great. And so it's not head above any of these other states. But the we are blessed in this state with biologists like you matt and at every complex and how serious they take it and it's just the passion from the waterfowl hunters and i mean we're just we're really really blessed in this state to have guys like you and and even the guys from the commission that take all this so seriously as serious as i want them to take it and and put all that data together and whatever decision they make you can trust that it's from um thoughtful deliberate decisions for the best. Yeah, I mean, of, yeah that, that means a lot. We get, we get a lot of negative complaints, which is fine. It's part of the job. And, and we always appreciate the, the positive ones too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I got into this line of work not to make money, but you know, I love going to work every day and, and I, I, I take the properties that we manage. Uh, I, I take it personally and, and I take a lot of pride in, in the property and there's a lot of ownership there. So it's, it's appreciated when we get positive comments like that. So, well, and let me brag on you for a second because I can tell you I I'm not on the forums much because I can't stand it, but I peek from time to time, and I've never heard us or heard a single bad statement about you or a negative statement about you on there. From my from way I can see it, I've seen several positive actually. Um, people saying that you should when when the Shine Bottoms job was up, there's several times where people were vying for you to get that, but the, I think that the general perception of you. By everyone I've heard of is positive. So you are doing a fantastic job. Keep up. Well, I want you at that complex for the rest of your life. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't plan on going anywhere right now. Awesome. All righty, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Duck Gum Podcast. Um, that's all we got for tonight. Thanks again, Matt. We really appreciate you coming on. I'm Jordan, Duck Hunt Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, and Matt Farmer. And we'll see you guys on the next one.